0: Well, good morning. If you were here with us last Sunday, you might recall that we had a unique experience on the 410 campus as the power went completely out for roughly 40 minutes during our worship service. And as it went out and I was walking around campus, it was kind of a surreal experience because every building was just dark. Uh, Even the sanctuary. You know, Roger was up here preaching with a flashlight. It was pretty Spartan. It was... uh, It was an interesting deal. And so when this happened, my biggest concern was the children's area. Because I know my children, and I know what happens with my children when the power goes out. And it's as if they have taken the power and it has gone into their bodies. (laughs) Right? So I was like, oh, man, i got to get to the, the children's area. So I go to the children's area, and it was amazing it was incredible i mean our our volunteer leaders they were just doing this tremendous job utilizing the darkness to explain the light of christ And then upstairs, the elementary kids were gathered together, and they were being taught on baptism. And and so the the teacher decided, you know, I want to end with the gospel. I sensed the Spirit moving here. And they finished by giving a, a, a gospel presentation. And when they were done, seven kids went to the back of the room to talk to leaders because they had trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. It was incredible. And I just wanted to share that with with all of you for two reasons. One, because that's that's something to celebrate. If we had seven babies born during the service, people would be going nuts, right? These are seven new births, spiritual births right here. And so it's worth celebrating. And, And then the second reason I want to tell you is because it got me thinking once again about the importance of children's ministry and the importance of reaching children at that age. I read a study not too long ago by the National Association of Evangelicals, and what they did is they did a survey, they did a study where they looked at when are people converted. Like, when does conversion take place? And as they did this survey, as they did this study, what they found was roughly two-thirds of the respondents in the survey said that they pointed to a time between the ages of 4 and 14. Two-thirds. They call it the 4-14 window. There was also a study done uh, by Barna, if you know Barna Research, back in the early 2000s, same type of study, same type of criteria, and they came up and they came with the same type of results. So much so that George Barna, the founder of of this research uh, group, he said that the big takeaway from this research project was this right here. He said, families, churches, and parachurch ministries must recognize that primary window of opportunity for effectively reaching people with the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is during the pre-teen years. It is during those years that people develop their frames of reference for the remainder of their life, especially theologically and morally. Consistently explaining and modeling truth principles for young people is the most critical factor in their spiritual development. Isn't that powerful? What a responsibility we have. What a privilege we have as the church to invest in young people. Whether it's here at 410, at Stone Oak, in Colonial Hills, in our community or around the world. What a gift we have to reach our young people. So I just wanted to really say thank you. I want to say thank you to those of you who faithfully volunteer with our kids here at Wayside. Thank you to those who give of your time and invest in, in Awana or in the Colonial Hills Outreach. Those who invest your time in, in, in children's ministry at Stone Oak. Those of y'all who invest your time with our student ministries. You are making an incredible an investment. And even so many who do not come to faith till they're later in their life, they point back to what they received when they were younger. So you never know. So just thank you. But most of all, I just wanted to start off this morning and give thanks to God. Because as great as our volunteers are, and you guys are just wonderful, God deserves the praise. Because it is by His Spirit, it is by His grace that any of us can see Him for who He truly is. And it's just amazing that in the midst of the darkness last week, He really brought forth His glorious light. As seven children came to know Jesus as Lord. So praise God for that. Pretty amazing. Somebody said we should turn off the lights more often. we, We have a great passage this morning. One of the ultimate stories... From the ultimate storyteller. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 1, as we look at what is known as the parable of the soils. Now starting in verse 1, this is what it says. It says, Soon afterwards, he, being Jesus, began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, Mag- Mary who was called Magdalene, from whose seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. So our story picks out, this is called the Galilean portion of the Gospel of Luke chapters 4 through 9, essentially. He's, he's ministering to Galilee. And so he's going from village to village. He's proclaiming the kingdom. He's preaching the kingdom of God. And Luke tells us that he is surrounded by the apostles. But he also tells us that it's not just the apostles who are near him. There's also some women. Luke, Luke loves to highlight the role that women play in the life of Jesus. And, and it's really unfortunate that so many in our society really view Christianity as being hostile to women. And while the church has certainly tripped up at times and made mistakes and abused women, the head of the church, Christ our Lord, he had an incredible, incredible, he valued women to an extent far beyond anybody of that day. He viewed their contribution as essential and incredible. When you, when you actually stop and think about this, when you, th- when you think about the pivotal, defining moments in the life of Jesus, he is most often surrounded by women. By women. Think of the birth narrative, right? We read that in chapter, chapter 1. Who's the first person that knows about the coming of this Christ child? Mary. The angel Gabriel visits Mary. And then when we get to Jesus' death on the cross... Who's, who, surrounds, who surrounds Jesus? Is it his faithful apostles? No, they're hiding under rocks. Only John is there. But you know who is there? Well, Matthew tells us. He says, many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee. From right here. Among them, Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee they're there. What about his burial? It's women preparing his body. What about the resurrection? Who does Jesus appear to first after the resurrection? Peter? No. Does he go to John? No. Does he go to the religious leaders? No. Does he go to the Roman authorities? No. He appears to none other than Mary Magdalene. And he says, you go tell the apostles. And then after that, subsequently after that, three more women, including the Joanna that we read about this morning. And when you stop and think about that, this is an incredible thing that we have in our scriptures. It is a powerful encouragement to women, and it is a powerful apologetic to the reality of these events. And here's why women were second-class citizens in that day and age. Very little rights, very little credibility. They could not even testify in court. So the last thing the apostles would want to do, if they're making up a story, is to have it based upon the testimony of women. I mean, they're not just sitting around in a huddle going, man, we really want this Jesus resurrection thing to catch on. What should we do, John? You know what I was thinking? Let's make women key witnesses. Peter's like, no, dude, no, no. Mary Magdalene. Yeah, seven spirits. Yeah, no. No way. But what is beautiful is that they don't cover it up, do they? There's no revisionist history here. The apostles and the writers of Scripture say, this is what happened. We bailed. They stayed. We were cowards. They were not. He appeared to them before he appeared to us. It's an incredible apologetic about the reality and the truthfulness of the events described. Women were key to his ministry then. Women are key to his ministry to this day. And Luke mentions three, although there were many. He mentions Mary Magdalene who is pretty prominent, the one whose seven demons was cast out. He mentions Joanna, who was married to one of Herod's stewards, Shusa. So she's high society. And then there was Susanna. So three individuals that Luke says are helping support, fund, and encourage the ministry of Jesus as he went around and taught. And that's when we come to verse 4. It says, When a large crowd was coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to him, He spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And as he said these things, he would call out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So as I mentioned, this is, this is called the parable of the soils. It's one of Jesus' most famous parables. But before we unpack this, let's first deal with the question of, well, what exactly is a parable? What does it mean that he taught in parables? Well, you really already know this because it comes straight from the Greek. The, the prefix "para," "para" means to come alongside. So, think of a paralegal, or you work for a para church ministry. So, it's it's coming along the side. So, a parable is a story that involves a comparison that illustrates a spiritual or moral truth on the side. So it's a story with a comparison that illustrates a spiritual or moral truth on the side. So there's more than meets the eye when it comes to a parable. And what's interesting is as Jesus goes on in his ministry, his his usage of parables ramps up. So at first he may may sprinkle parables in every once in a while. But as his ministry continues and as the Jews continue to, um, to turn from him, As their resistance increases, he moves towards teaching in parables almost exclusively. And the question we have to ask Jesus is why? Why the change in methodology? And he answers for us in the next two verses. In in verses 9 and 10, this is what he says. He says, his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So follow me here because this is, this is important. When Jesus teaches in parables, especially ones as he goes on that talk about mystery, what he is doing is he is mixing blessing with judgment. Because when he speaks in parables, the two things that he is doing is he is revealing and he is concealing. Those are the two points of a parable, the two reasons he's doing it. To reveal spiritual truth to those who have ears to hear and to conceal spiritual truth from those who do not. And so in doing so, the group divides into two, those who want to receive what he has to say and those who have no clue what he is saying at all. And so the apostles hear this, and they're like, okay, we want to know the mysteries. We know that you have the answers. Tell us more. Unpack this for us, Jesus. We want to know. That's what the apostles do, because they have ears to hear. Those without, what does Jesus say about them? Well, what he does here is he makes this point by quoting from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is known as the the prince of prophets. And Isaiah lived about 700 years before Jesus lived. And he ministered in a time when Israel's heart was extremely hardened towards God. They were in deep rebellion against God. And yet in the midst of that, God calls Isaiah into the prophetic ministry. And this is laid out for us in Isaiah chapter 6, which is one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible. Where where what happens is you you have the holy, holy, holy. It's the first place it shows up there. It's called the trisagion, the thrice holies. And Isaiah's like, oh my gosh, I'm a man of unclean lips. I don't deserve to be here. And the angel comes and he touches him. And his sin is forgiven. And we pick up there in verse 8. And this is what happens. Isaiah writes, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah's like, I'm your guy. Here I am. Send me. Uh oh. There's more. And this is what God tells Isaiah keep on listening, but do not perceive. Go and tell this people keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand render the hearts of this people insensitive their ears dull and their eyes dim otherwise they might see with their ears hear with see with their eyes hear with their ears understand with their hearts and return and be healed wow and so isaiah responds and he says how long how long lord and he answered until cities are devastated and without inhabitant houses are without people And the land is utterly desolate. So this is intense. God tells Isaiah, hey, you're going to be my guy. You're going to go into Israel. You're going to preach the word. You are going to be my guy. But Isaiah, I need to let you in on something. And here's the deal. They are not going to listen to you. It is not going to go well for you. And you know why they're not going to listen to Isaiah? You know why they're not going to listen to you? Because I will not let them. I will not let them. They are going to be judged. I am rendering their hearts insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. In other words, judgment is coming. And God always keeps a remnant from Israel. And we know that he will restore... From Romans 11. But judgment is coming on these people because of the hardness of their heart. And I understand this is tough stuff. But before you start thinking about, man, I just, uh, this is uncomfortable to think of, of God this way. Let me also tell you that he's not doing anything to them that they have not already done to themselves. They are already hardened towards God. They have already turned their back on God. They have already become insensitive to the things of God. What God's doing is saying, tell you what, I'm going to pack your bags and I'm going to show you the door. Let me help you out a little bit. But it's judgment. Make no mistake. And this is exactly what ends up happening. Isaiah is faithful and the people are not. They end up killing Isaiah. They saw him in two. And Israel is judged. Assyria comes from the north in 722 and wipes out Israel. And Babylon comes from the south in 586 and takes out Judah until the houses are left desolate. And so centuries later, when Jesus is using parables, especially in this context here, and then he quotes Isaiah 6, he's signaling that judgment is coming. This is an Isaiah 6 moment. And so from now on, he uses parables, parables that will reveal spiritual truth to those who are hungry, with ears to hear, who are receptive. And he will speak in parables to conceal spiritual truth from those who cannot hear it and are not interested in the things of God. So it's judgment and blessing wrapped into one. And so with that being said, we can now unpack The parable, which he answers for us, which makes it pretty nice. And so as as you read the parable, notice it's not the parable of the sower. It's not the parable of the seed. Okay, the sower is Christ himself or the disciples or someone who is sowing the seed. And the seed is the word of God. But the emphasis in the parable is on the soils. It's on the four soils and how they receive the seed. And so this story catches the disciples' ears, and they know Jesus is not teaching farming 101. Like they know this is not about agriculture, right? Because parables have a meaning on the side. And so they say, Jesus, tell us. Unpack this for us. And he does, starting in verse 11. He says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away from Uh, takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity." But the seed and the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. So Jesus puts the interpretive grid on it, right? He gets out the map key and he tells them, here's what's going on here. Each soil represents a response to the word of God. And so ultimately the point of this parable is about one's receptivity to the word and then response to it over a lifetime. That's the point of the parable. It's about one's receptivity to the Word of God and then response to it over the course of a lifetime. And what is fascinating as you look through these four responses is they really haven't changed the past 2,000 years, have they? It's the same four responses, pretty much, that we see in our day and age. And so I could not help, as I was studying for this sermon, think back to when I came to faith. I was 16 years old. I was at Frontier Ranch in Buena Vista, Colorado with a ministry called Young Life. Dan Jessup was the speaker. He spoke on the prodigal son, maybe Jesus' greatest parable. And, man, the Holy Spirit just pierced my heart that night. And for the first time, I, saw, I, I was able to see who I truly was, which was a sinner in need of grace. I was able to see God for who he truly was, my creator and redeemer. And I was able to see salvation for what it truly was, not a moral reform, but placing your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and experiencing the fullness of life now and eternal life to come. I mean, God got me that week. And in the last night, there, there was a time called say-so. It was really complicated. You'd stand up and say-so if you were saved, Okay. If you came to know the Lord that week. So that night happens and somebody will get up and they'll say, hey, my name is Michael Laudermilk. I'm from San Antonio, Texas. And this week I trusted Christ for the forgiveness of my sin. And everybody go, oh, man, woo! that's awesome. And it was. But not everyone stood up. We, had a, we actually had a huge group go with us. We had about 60 kids from our high school go to camp. And while the Lord got a hold of my heart that week, he didn't get a hold of everyone's heart. There were some who were there, and it didn't impact them a lick. I mean, they wanted nothing to do with the gospel. That seed was sown on their soil, and it got eaten up right away. And they thought, this thing is crazy. It's foolishness, way too restrictive, way too judgmental, no thanks, not interested. It's the first soil. That being said, there were others who stood up with me, right? Others who stood up and, and, and had their say-so moment. I mean, the gospel had impacted them. It had, it had taken root in their life. But a strange thing happened when they returned home, when opposition came. Those who had stood for Christ at camp sat down when it came to living for him at home. They said, yes, Lord, I believe. And they got off that bus in San Antonio, Texas, and opposition came. And they said, actually, I don't. And when they had to make a choice what to let go of, they chose to let go of God. These are people in in the second soil who have a superficial faith that results in superficial faithfulness. But what about the third soil? See, not everyone who came home departed from the faith right away. Many who had received the Word, had responded to the Word, were growing in the Word. They went home and they were living for Him, but as time went by, something happened. Something happened. The shine of wore off the camp high went away the honeymoon ended and when it's time for the real work to begin they got distracted they got distracted by the by the thorns of life thorns in in that day in israel they grew up to six feet tall both that day in Israel and this day in my yard, right? Six feet tall. And what those weeds would do is they would choke out the plant. They would choke it out. And so Jesus says, there are those whose faith gets choked out by the thorns of pleasure and by the thorns of worry. There are those who are so obsessed with worrying that they lose their joy and they lose sight of me. And there's those who are so obsessed with the worldly pleasures, the things that are shiny, that they lose their joy and focus on me. And what it does is it robs them of their potential to produce fruit. And it's really sad. And so while people in verse 13 turned away because of opposition and adversity... People in verse 14 turned away because of competition and diversity. So the people in verse 13 said, I don't want to do this because it's too hard. And the people in verse 14 said, I don't want to do this because there's so much other stuff I want to do. And they became distracted. And it's not that we can't enjoy life. But it's also understanding that the fullness of our joy is found in following him. Seek first the kingdom. And they lost sight of that. But then we have the fourth soil. Jesus says that these are the ones who have heard the word with an honest and good heart. They hold to it fast and they bear fruit with perseverance. So these are the people in which the word of God has found a home in their heart. They have received it with joy and they have responded with obedience over the course of their life. All by the grace of God. And in doing so they yield a spiritual crop far beyond what they ever thought possible. And that week at camp, there were some fourth soil guys with me. There were some fourth soil dudes and gals. I Skyped with one of them just a month ago. He and his, four, his wife and his four kids, they serve as missionaries right outside Somalia. An incredibly intense area. And, and while he lives in Somalia, his zip code is the fourth soil. You with me? It's the fourth soil. And he's not in the fourth soil because he's a missionary. That's beside the point. He doesn't, God doesn't call everybody to be a missionary, but he calls us to reside in the fourth soil. He calls us to receive his word with joy and to respond with obedience. And my buddy, by Somalia, the fruit of his life is displayed for all to see. God has transformed his heart, and he is shining into the darkness making a kingdom investment which no one can deny. And that's what Jesus speaks to next in verses 16 through 21. He basically says, this is how you apply it. This is why we're doing this. In verse 16, he says, No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed. But he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So take care how you listen. For whoever has to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. And his mother and brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God. And do it. So, so Jesus closes with an exhortation, then a warning, and then a summary to kind of package up this passage. An exhortation, a warning, and a summary. The exhortation is found in verses 16 and 17. And here's what essentially Jesus is saying. He's saying, I teach in parables, so in order to reveal and to conceal. You are to reveal, 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 reveal. There's no conceal with you. You are to shine. You are to let your light shine for all to see. Do not cover it up. Reveal the glory and the goodness of God in your life. And that's what you will be accountable for when it's all said and done. That's what he's saying in verses 16 and 17. And then in verse 18... He follows the exhortation with a warning. He says, so take care how you listen. He's saying, apply what I just said. And then he has some words there that's a little bit the spiritual equivalent of the rich get richer and the poor will get poorer when it comes to spiritual things. And, and this warning by Jesus here, it reminds me of the process of learning a new language. Have you ever tried to learn a new language? Really, the best way to learn is you've got to study it nonstop and you've got to immerse yourself in it, right? You want to you have conversations with people in that language. You have to consistently study it and grow in it and grow in it so you can become fluent in that language. And when you stop when you close that book, what happens to all that knowledge that you had? It goes away. It leaves you. I experienced this firsthand. In college, I went and studied in France. And I spent the summer there. And I remember b- by the end, I'm walking around Paris. And someone's like, hey, bonjour. And they would say, parlez-vous français? And I'd say, j'ai parlé français. J'adore français. I mean, I was ready to, like, buy one of those painter's hats, you know. Get a little mustache and get my watercolor paintings out by the Champs-Élysées. All right? But the summer ended. And I came back to Texas. Right? Six months in College Station. Whoop! Six months later, I'm walking around campus in College Station. My professor sees me says... Comment allez-vous, monsieur Michael? And I look at him, and I just say, "Qué? No comprende, amigo. No habla español." Right? Gone. Gone. Jesus says, "If you, I had to research, had to re- research the words I just said because I couldn't remember how to say them." Don't, do like after the first service spoke to me in French. I'm like, "Dude, I don't know French. That's the point." That's the point. <laughs> All right. Jesus says, if you walk in obedience, if you receive my word with joy and respond in kind, you will grow. Your intimacy will grow. You will become more fluent in the things of God. But if you turn away, if you turn away from me, you're going to lose your sensitivity. You're going to lose that which you had. It's not saying you're going to lose your salvation, but you're going to forget how to speak the language. And that's a terrible thing. So it's a warning. And then finally in verses 19 through 21, he really sums up this whole section through uh, an interesting way. His family comes, right? And they come and they say, we want to see Jesus. And the crowd comes in, they say, hey, Jesus, your family's here, man. And how does Jesus respond? My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He says, you want to know who my family is? It's the people living in the fourth soil. It's the people receiving the word with joy and responding with obedience. That's my family. And you can find them anywhere. Anywhere. And so as, as we come to a close this morning, I, I just want to also say one more thing. I know that as many of you are, are hearing this, are receiving this, and myself included, as I'm preaching this, there are times where I feel far from the fourth soil. Like I can't even get my best binoculars and see the fourth soil. I'm lucky to be hanging on in the third. And I know that's probably true for many of you here this morning where life is beating you down. It's beating you down. And so if that's you, I just want to say one thing. One thing. And if this is is your only takeaway this this entire morning, I want it to be this one thing, which is remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Because you never outgrow it. You never graduate from gospel school. You are always in it. And as Philippians 1 says, he who began a good work and you will complete it in Christ Jesus. We have the promises of God that he has not done with us. That we are not what we once were, but we are not what we one day will be. We have the promises of God. And so I want you to find your ultimate security not in yourself. Because we all are such failures. Like habitual failures. So we don't find security in ourself. We find it in the nail-scarred hands of our Savior who constantly holds us in the grip of His grace. That's where our security comes from. From God Himself. And, and I came across an illustration that I, I think really illustrates this. And I want to close with it. And, and it's about a, a group of botanists a group of scientists who went on an expedition looking for new varieties of flowers. If you don't know what botanists are, they are people who study botany. (laughs) (laughs) And so one day one of the scientists has binoculars and he sees this rare breed of flower. And so the scientists head over there, but they can't get down in the gorge. They can't get down there. They need someone smaller and they spot a local kid nearby who's been with them the whole time. And they say, why don't we send you down there? And, of course, this kid doesn't know any better. He says, okay, I'll do it. So they tie him up with a rope and a harness, and they take him over to see the flower. And he peers over there, and he's like, oh, man. And he gets scared. And he tells them, y'all, hold on a second. I'll be right back. And a few minutes later, that kid comes back with another gentleman. And he says, okay, I'm ready. But this guy's got to hold my rope. And they say, who's that guy? He says, well, that's my dad. And I know he will not let go of me. Friends, when you do the will of God the Father, and you know what ultimately the will of God the Father is? It's to place your trust in God the Son. When you do the will of the Father and place your trust in Christ the Son, the scriptures say that God the Spirit will seal you and indwell you for all eternity as a down payment of the salvation that God purchased for you on the cross. So find your hope and your trust in Him and remember that you have God Himself holding the rope and that when you are lowered down into that gorge that is life where you are just distracted, where you are attacked, Where there's all kinds of things cutting you and in your way. Remember who's holding your rope. And just listen to his voice. And he's saying, I got you. I got you. And I'm not going to let go. And when you're done, my child, when you are finished, I will pull you up to be with me. You can count on it. That is the faithfulness of our God. And that is what we remember and what we celebrate when we come together for communion. You guys have have heard me quote Dr. Hannah before. He's one of the profs at DTS and he's eminently quotable. And in class one time he said, you know, if our greatest need was education, God would have sent us a teacher he said, if, if our greatest need was financial security, God would have sent us an advisor. And if our greatest need was to be an athlete, God would have sent us a coach. But our greatest need was the forgiveness of sin, so God sent us a Savior. As God the Father sent God the Son, our Lord Jesus, who came to earth, was born in a manger, Fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life without sin, willingly dying on the cross for you and for me and rising from the grave on that third day, showing that he had conquered sin and death. And when he ascended on high, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the Spirit comes, sealing God's people for all eternity and indwelling them every day of their life. For he is faithful even when we are faithless. It's God holding the rope. You're not relying on your own strength. You're not saying, oh, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to get that thing. Because you can't. And you won't. It is an act of grace by our God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who work together and say, I've got you. I've got you. Trust in me. And so as we come together for communion, it's one of those beautiful things that that Jesus ordained to his apostles and to the church, that we would gather and that we would celebrate what Christ did for us as we look back and as we would look forward to the fact that he's not done and that he will come again and wipe away every tear. So communion is incredibly special. And so the men are going to pass the elements now. The ushers are going to come past the elements. And as you receive the elements, go before the Lord. And if there's something you need to confess, do it now. Get right. Communion is for all who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. So when you receive the elements, please hold on to them, and we will take them together as as a body. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Eat this in remembrance of him. You know, the Jews did not have to be convinced that sin was an issue. They had a whole sacrificial system set up to deal with it. Sacrifices were constantly being made at the temple, and and the air would just be filled day after day with the stench of burning flesh and meat, reminding them of the toxicity of their sin. The scriptures say that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And so God did what only God could do. And Jesus came to shed his blood for you and for me in his great love. The blood of Christ. Drink this in remembrance of him. Would you pray with me? Father, words cannot express. They are inadequate to fully convey the gratitude of our hearts. You created us to know you. Every breath we breathe is because you have given us life. And yet even in that, we have all turned. We have all gone astray. The ground is level at the foot of the cross and we have all gone our own way. And even in our rebellion, you did not wash your hands of us. And we thank you, God the Son, our Lord Jesus. You left your throne in heaven and you came to earth in the muck and the mire of humanity, fully God and fully man, dying on the cross and rising from the dead. We thank you. We praise you, our Lord Jesus. And we thank you, God the Son, the one who continually points us to our Savior, the one who seals us as a down down payment, as a deposit, the one who indwells us and guides us. We worship you, Spirit, and we ask that you would come alive in us, that we might be a light that's not hidden, but a light for all to see. And Lord, would you use us to make much of you, that others might come to know you and do the same. God, I thank you for this morning. You have created us to gather and worship. And so we thank you for this space to do it as family. And God, we pray that we would go forth with a singleness of heart and that you would guide our path. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.